Good evening, everybody. I am pumped and excited. Holy cow. I've been looking forward to this. There's plenty of stuff to talk about tonight. Uh, Claire Lopez will be my guest here momentarily. We're just waiting for her call to come in, and as soon as it does, we'll get her on the air. If you don't know who Claire Lopez is, she has a long history in uh, the field of uh, intelligence. She was. Uh, she has a lot of history, a lot of background experience in, during the Cold War behind the Iron Curtain. Um, just has an incredible resume. If you want to, what I would suggest is you go and have a look at her resume. It'll blow your mind. This lady is incredible beyond imagination. I have a tremendous amount of respect for her, and uh, I certainly am going to enjoy asking her and talking to her tonight about the situation uh, going on in the United States. And with that, I would like to bring on Claire Lopez. Claire, how are you doing? Hi, Nick. Good evening. Good. Thank you for having me. Oh, the pleasure is mine. I'm glad to have you on the show. It's always a treat to talk to you. Um, so I guess what we do is we'll just dive right into this. Oh, for the callers, if they want to call in and ask questions, 343-700-4390 is the number. Okay, um, <clears throat> and if you want to email me a question, I'll keep an eye on my email or post a question on Facebook uh, that you want uh, me to ask Claire. We can do that as well. All right, so Claire... You have been up to your backside in rattlesnakes down there for probably the better part of six months, leading up to the election, and now tomorrow's the, inaugura the inauguration of uh, Mr. Trump, the president-elect, to become POTUS, or president of the United States. Kind of set the stage for us. What's, what, what kind of situation are you facing at the moment? Well, the, the inauguration will actually be on Friday, the 20th of, of January, and... Um, we are uh, much looking forward to it. Unfortunately, the weather uh, is calling for rain. Um, but aside from that, uh, it should be uh, a great day. We've had the lead-up with um, the nomination and um, hearings for uh, many of the potential uh, Trump administration appointees in uh, the U.S. Uh, cabinet, uh, various secretaries, and uh, other positions. And uh, so it's just been a very exciting time for us down here. I can imagine it has been. All right. Well, let's let's um, go back. Before we get in, I want to talk about some of the appointees and things like that. I've been watching uh, some of the uh, heavy hitters down there, the Trey Gowdies and people like that, questioning uh, um, uh, some of the people who are going in, who are being appointed, and uh, some of the Democratic uh, people questioning the Secretary, future Secretary of State, people like that. I want to get into that. But at the same time, uh, I also want to go back to the election itself when we, there was all, all this, you know, Russia was messing with the electoral process and then uh, they denied it and WikiLeaks denied it, only to find out it came from Senator John McCain. Did I understand that correctly? Well, sort of. Um, apparently what happened is that um, some muckrakers um, in, in the period of, of, of the... Uh, uh, immediate uh, um, during the campaign, that is, and then immediate aftermath, um, had um, put together some sort of a dossier um, of uh, unsubstantiated um, uh, muckraking rumor and innuendos. And um, apparently Senator John McCain heard about this and uh, dispatched uh, someone uh, to pick this dossier up and bring it back to the United States where 
Uh, it was handed to the intelligence community, uh, which then uh, duly uh, leaked it promptly um, for the um, salacious uh, enjoyment of um, the liberal uh, left-wing media here in the United States. Now, okay, cause, uh, look, I, there's no secret that Trump and McCain uh, don't like each other. But is there, was there anything criminal in what McCain did, or was this just, aha, I'm going to find a way to skewer this guy, and that's what it amounted to? Because I, I don't know. It's just I'm looking at this, and I, I just am failing to understand why a senior member of the U.S. government, a senator, would ever engage in any kind of activity like this, especially somebody who's supposed to be on Trump's side. Reputable, but it's uh, nothing illegal that I that I can think of. Okay. On the part of Senator McCain. Well, I was just curious about it because holy smokes, this thing twists and turns. So in the end, the Russians didn't have anything to do with trying to hack into the DNC database or into some of the uh, electoral machines down in Florida. From what I understand, they were accused of. So it turns out that Vladimir, uh, not Vladimir, but uh, Trump was right that this had nothing to do with the Russians. You know, the Russians, uh, like every other major intelligence service in, in the world, including the United States, Britain, France, Germany, uh, Italy, Iran, China, uh, Russia, as I said, um, and North Korea, you name it. They've got the capability. Everybody's hacking everybody else all the time. Oh, that's true. Uh, that's a given. Yeah. That's just the way things work. So, of course, the Russians, uh, just as all the other above named, were and have been involved in at least attempting um, through, you know, cyber means to penetrate uh, different databases of each other's uh, government agencies uh, and, and, and other uh, sorts of uh, organizations. Um, what we know happened is that WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, uh, acquired um, some emails uh, that were hacked from uh, the, uh, the emails of John Podesta, advisor to the Hillary Clinton campaign, uh, because he was foolish enough to allow himself uh, to give up his password in a very traditional, typical phishing sort of an attack, that is P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G right, attack. Right, right, yeah. And um, the Democratic National Committee, which obviously did not have as robust cyber protections as did the Republican National Committee, which was not penetrated because its cyber protections were uh, better and more robust. Um, but so the Podesta emails and the, and the DNC emails um, found their way to WikiLeaks, uh, which published them. Uh, there was nothing um, found to be counterfactual uh, in the emails, everything in them uh, checked out, was validated, was, was true. These are actual emails. They were um, actually uh, from the people that uh, they are ascribed to. That is John Podesta and the DNC. Um, and uh, as, uh, as um, negative as the uh, derogatory, as the uh, email's contents turned out to be, uh, there was nothing false about it in any way. Okay. Uh, now, I've got a call, <clears throat> so I'm going to bring on the caller. So give me just a second here. Uh, just takes a second. There we are. Hello, caller. What's your first name? 
James. James. James in Ottawa. Oh, yes, James. James, um, <laughs> you've got a question or a comment for Claire. I sure do. Claire, great to hear your voice. Always love to hear your analysis. Um, now, I this question is based on uh, some a lecture I believe I heard you give a few years ago, and quite often I come back to thinking about it. Uh, I think you were discussing. Now, stop me if I'm wrong. If it's somebody else, or if I have this wrong, but you were you were discussing how Hugo Chavez's Venezuela had turned essentially Margarita Island into kind of a joint Hezbollah Al Qaeda. Um, black market drug manufacturing weapons jihad training camp. Uh, do I have that roughly right? Well, uh, good to hear you too, James. Um, uh, in 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 uh, sort of general terms, you're you're, you're on the right track. Um, Venezuela and uh, Iran, um, their regimes, respective regimes, uh, became close during the years when. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was president of Iran 2005 till 2013, and Hugo Chavez was president of Venezuela until he died of cancer in 2013. Um, and uh, Chavez allowed Venezuela to become a Western Hemisphere outpost for Iran, and so, of course, wherever there is Iran, there is its terror proxy, Hezbollah, which indeed turned the Venezuelan island of Margarita, which is in the Caribbean, um, into its banking and finance hub uh, for the Western Hemisphere operations. Um, and uh, there may also uh, be training camps, um, one or more, uh, for Hezbollah on that island. I do not know of any al-Qaeda presence there, uh, and I don't know of any uh, particular arms depot or arms um, trafficking uh, going on there, although who knows, but... Or drugs, pharmaceuticals. Hub for banking and finance for, for Hezbollah in the Western Hemisphere. Drugs? Was there a drug, was there a drug connection? Not because specifically, it, it, no. Obviously, uh, Iran and Hezbollah uh, are, are deeply involved in the narcotics uh, trafficking that goes on in the Western Hemisphere, primarily coming out of uh, the uh, cocaine trade from Colombia, uh, other drugs now, too, heroin, poppies, um, and, and uh, marijuana, as well as methamphetamines to some extent, but more uh, than anything else, cocaine. Um, and those are, are uh, that, that, that product is, is trafficked both uh, eastward, that is, through Venezuela and across the Atlantic Ocean to uh, Africa and from thence on northward to customers in Europe, as well as straight up north from South America through Central America and into uh, the United States and Canada. And, of course, Hezbollah is deeply involved in that narcotics trading. As a matter of fact, narcotics is the number one funding stream for Hezbollah at the present time. Well, what I was wondering is, yesterday or the day before, the current leader of Venezuela, whose name escapes me. Um, Nicolas the, Maduro. Yes, Maduro actually admonished the world press and world behavior in its, its uh, ridiculous sort of uh, ambush on, on Donald Trump. And he was saying that this is ridiculous, that people, you know, we should let the guy take office and see how he does, and he's probably going to be fine. And I thought, well, does this signal a real sea change for uh, Venezuela's, Venezuela's foreign policy? Because 
Here, Chavez, of course, it was it was as foamingly, rabidly anti-American as was Iran. And I'm wondering if he's looking to kind of go back to a more traditional uh, U.S. alliance. Um, do you know? Hard to see how that would be possible. Uh, Venezuela remains on very good terms uh, with the Tehran regime uh, under successors. Now Hassan Rouhani is president of Iran, and of course Maduro is, is president of Venezuela. Uh, the relationship remains, though. Um, Hezbollah and Iranian uh, intelligence and uh, terrorist and counter-narcotics counter, trafficking um, uh, hubs remain uh, there in Venezuela and throughout South America, really. Um, that's their primary business. They are involved as well in arms trafficking, uh, all kinds of other crime, including contraband, uh, arms trafficking. Uh, that, that does not change, uh, has not changed. Um, if anything, things have gotten worse uh, as Venezuela descends into total collapse, financial collapse, um, where um, everything is in short supply. They don't produce anything except uh, oil, and uh, those prices have, have dropped r precipitously over the last several years. And for a country that has basically no other income, uh, it's been devastating for Venezuela. Um, and uh, so it, uh, it is the, on the verge of, of total collapse. Um, but the narcotics trafficking and the um, intelligence uh, collaboration between Venezuela and Iran and, of course, Hezbollah uh, continues with the presence of Iranian IRGC, Quds Force, and intelligence uh, operatives throughout the country. Um, and uh, those are the ones who actually direct and, and uh, command um, the Hezbollah operations. Um, and it's throughout Latin America, on up, as I said, through Central America, uh, into Mexico, where the relationships are close with the Mexican uh, cartels, uh, like Los Ecos, Sinaloa, Gulf Cartel, and so forth, and all the way on up uh, through to Canada in North America. Uh, folks, I'm going to have to interrupt. Well, I can't uh, see how the relationship is going to be uh, in any way improved um, as the situation, if anything, deteriorates. Folks, I'm going to have to interrupt. We need to take a break. James, great call. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Claire. All Thanks, right. <clears throat> Hang on, Claire. We have to take a little commercial break and pay some bills, and when we, we'll, when we get through that, we'll be right back. My guest is Claire Lopez. You can call us if you want to join in the conversation at 343-700-4390. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. Thanks for staying with us, folks. My guest this evening is Claire Lopez. She is a uh, uh, senior fellow, I believe it's senior, your senior fellow at Insignus Research. Am I right, Claire? Well, actually, uh, since 2014, I've been vice president for research and analysis at the Washington, D.C. think tank, Center for Security Policy. That's okay. Frank Gaffney. That's right, as a matter of fact, because I had another an <laughs> another think tank in mind. My apologies. Um I was listening with rapt attention to your conversation with the previous caller. And since we're on the international stage at the moment anyway, um, there was a lot made about uh, in the run-up to the election and even since about uh, how cozy it appeared that uh, Trump was with Vladimir Putin. Uh, what do you think the real situation is? Like uh, when, he says he, when Trump says he admires Vladimir Putin, I don't, I don't think he's saying he's a great guy and he wants to emulate him. Uh, how do you? What do you think is um, his real attitude about that? I know you can't read a man's mind, but based on what you've witnessed and observed, and some of the things he's, some of the people he's picked, and some of that that will deal with these kinds of issues for him. Well, I think the reality is that uh, these are two very successful, powerful men, each in his own country and his own, you know, sphere of activity, uh, who recognize in the other. Uh, certain traits uh, that that they share, meaning force of character, determination of will, um, and um, an ability to rise to the top of uh, you know your 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 sphere of activity. Um, Donald Trump in real estate, and Hollywood, and now politics, and uh, Putin uh, in in Russia. So I think it's more um, than you know, a mutual admiration society, it's, it's rather a mutual recognition of uh, the traits in the other that have made uh, each successful. I think on that basis, um, it will be possible to uh, deal, for these two men to deal with each other as they must. There's no ignoring U.S.-Russia relations. That That is uh, a relationship that must be managed, and it must be managed well. Uh, it doesn't mean uh, that, you know, Donald Trump is cushy with uh, the Kremlin regime. It doesn't mean, uh, you know, that, that, that he uh, 
uh, admires um, the aspects of, of the Kremlin or, or, or of uh, former KGB thug Vladimir Putin, um, you know, that make uh, Russia and Moscow at the moment um, certainly an adversary of the United States in many respects. Um, I don't think they're ignoring that at all. Uh, but I think that with a solid understanding of each other and each other's characters, uh, it will be possible um, to deal in a straightforward way um, that allows the United States to pursue what are our most important national security interests without uh, unnecessarily um, simply antagonizing uh, Moscow for the sake of antagonizing. Okay. Um, there are certainly areas that we're going to have to draw lines. And when we draw lines and Trump draws a line, that's a line I think that we all understand will be kept. <laughs> and I think Putin understands that as well. Now, but there are areas where we need to talk. At the very minimum, we have to talk about what's going on in the Middle East, about uh, nuclear weapons programs, uh, and what is happening in Europe. Do you think that Mr. Trump has a good understanding of the threat of Islamic terrorism and that he has a solid plan moving forward to deal with it? I think he does understand Islamic terrorism. I think he does understand uh, what Islam is. Um, the, the threat of the global jihad movement, um, and as well uh, the domestic threat from the Islamic movement that is the Muslim Brotherhood, so deeply entrenched uh, here in our countries, both Canada and the United States. So uh, with good advisors around him, people like General Mike Flynn, who is now the, the appointed um, uh, candidate head for our National Security Council, uh, and his deputy, uh, Katie McFarlane, um, people like these, General Mattis being appointed uh, as the future Secretary of Defense, uh, General John Kelly uh, being appointed to be the next Secretary of our Department of Homeland Security. Uh, these are good, solid appointments and uh, people who understand uh, the Islamic threat. And I think um, I, I shouldn't have left out um, the appointment uh, of uh, uh, Senator Jeff Sessions to be the next Attorney General. That would be the head of our Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. um, these are all really good appointments, and uh, I think these are people who understand uh, the threat uh, of Islamic Jihad. Well, since you brought them up, let's talk about some of these um, people. Because when I was watching, I think it was the grilling of uh, Mr. Sessions, uh, and I may have the wrong name to go with it. He was the head of Exxon and is now going to be... Oh, no, that well, was you're for... Thinking of, you're thinking of the, uh, the um, appointed uh, secretary for the Department of State, whom I, I did leave out as well, um, and that is going to be Secretary Tillerson. Right, that's it, yes. Because one of the things I noticed about this was that the, the Democrats and the people, on the people who don't like Trump in the, to begin with are screaming bloody murder about having the head of Exxon as the secretary of state... But I listened to, to his answers to the Democratic questions, and it seemed to me at least, and I guess I'm looking for your input, that he really understood his role as Secretary of State. He understood the main adversary, which in this case is we're talking about Russia. Is he as solid a man as I think he is? I think you're right in that assessment. Um, I don't know him personally, 
Um, but that's my, uh, my my impression as well. Very solid, uh, very well uh, versed in dealing at the top levels uh, of the international community. Certainly in you know the oil business, but uh, when you deal uh, at that level uh, with that firm, Exxon Mobil, um, you're dealing with top national leadership, uh, not just in the area of you know, oil and, and, and commerce and so forth, but, but uh, uh, the top levels of, um, you know, national leadership around the world. I, I think he's got a very good grasp. Well, this is one of the reasons. World, what makes the world tick, um, and um, certainly how to uh, maneuver and manage uh, in the international arena. Now, of the other picks that he's made, which one really jumps out at you? You kind of went, wow, that's a really great pick. Someone else that I almost forgot to mention um, is Mike Pompeo, former uh, uh, House of Representatives congressman um, who's been appointed to be the next director of the CIA. And uh, I think that is um, an extraordinarily um, solid choice for that position. Uh, he's got his work cut out for him, but um, I think he's going to do uh, a very good job over there. Because it's, it's remarkable. It seems like the the the, um, the level of resistance by I'll call it the left uh, equates to the quality of the character. In other words, the more solid the guy is, the more resistance he gets. Um, and I think that's true of Mr. Well, Sessions too, for Attorney General. We, we we certainly do have our work cut out for us down here. Um, there's been you know a tremendous penetration of our national security agencies uh, at the top levels. Um, from the White House to the National Security Council, Department of State, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice, the intelligence community, including the CIA, uh, by the Muslim Brotherhood. And um, that is going to have to be reversed uh, under the new administration. And those influences um, on our national security policy ended. Um, so that that is going to be... A, a real challenge, uh, and not just the Muslim Brotherhood. That's the sunny side of things of the Islamic Jihad challenge, but the Iran lobby as well on the Shiite side of things. Um, <coughs> Excuse me. Which also has, uh, achieved a remarkable level of, of influence on our national security policy here in the United States, as evidenced by um, the uh, unbelievably awful. JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or the Iran nuclear deal of last year, 2015, uh, that's going to have to uh, uh, hit the trash pile. Now, that was, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, several times Iran's come up in this evening's discussion. And I was thinking of the Iran nuclear deal because that was a deal made, made in hell. I mean, let's face it, I, the, most people with a brain in their head realize. You don't hand over billions of dollars and tons of uranium to a regime like Iran and believe them and say, oh, we're using it for civilian purposes. How is, is, it, is it going to be, I know it's, it's going to have to hit the trash pile, to use your phrase. How is he going to be able to undo that? Or, or you know, what, what do you think, what tools has he got to be able to undo that? I know he's threatened to rip up NAFTA. Can he rip this deal up too? Well, yes, he can. Um, this particular deal um, was not actually signed by anyone, by any party to the deal, uh, be it the European powers, um, the so-called P3 
five plus one permanent five members of the Security Council plus one being Germany uh, or Iran um, or the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, acting on behalf of the United Nations. Right. Nobody signed any page of this deal. So that's one. Number two, uh, in the United States, this deal um, is is not a treaty. It was not approved uh, by the Senate or anybody else, uh, as is um, customary and is is the law um, in the United States for actual treaties. This is not a treaty. Uh, it was an executive agreement. It has no force of law whatsoever. Now, what cannot be undone uh, are the billions upon billions of dollars in formerly frozen funds released to Iran, nor uh, can the sanctions regime probably be uh, snapped back, as, as so blithely asserted by some of our leadership. That can't happen. It won't happen. Um, but on the other hand, uh, this deal in and of itself honestly is totally irrelevant. It has no relationship whatsoever to reality of any kind. The Iranian nuclear weapons program never skipped a beat during the years of the negotiation of this deal. The actual Iranian nuclear weapons program continued in bunkers and tunnels under mountains, literally under mountains, um, in hidden sites uh, that were never up for discussion during, during the negotiations. Um, some of which are probably not even known to the outside world beyond Iran. Um, but very much that program uh, is, is in existence, has been since the late 1980s under Ayatollah Khomeini before he died, um, and uh, has never skipped a beat in all of that time. As well, the uh, ballistic missile program of Iran, which like its nuclear warhead program, is carried on as a kind of a joint venture together with the regime in Pyongyang in North Korea, um, that ballistic missile program continues apace as well. So even during all the time that they were discussing uh, this, this deal from about 20, I don't know, 10, 11, uh, to its conclusion last year, 2015, uh, they were talking about elements of Iran's nuclear program uh, that really had nothing to do with the weapons program itself. They were talking about facilities like Natanz or Isfahan um, that were already revealed to the outside world, were already known, and therefore became meaningless in terms of the real program, um, which has always been clandestine. Okay, well, before we so, take our... Before we take a there, I realize, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot in that wheelbarrow. But let me ask you this question before we take our next break. When you when you hear about Iran, first of all, there's, actually, there's two questions that that I have for you. Number one, how technically competent is Iran? I mean, I've seen some of the stuff about you know they brought out a brand new fighter, and nothing's but a, it's an old CFI Freedom fighter with a few new lines on it, and they call it the latest greatest thing that'll blow the Western Air Forces out of the sky. I mean, it's a, it's a flying target. And these things, this is supposed to be the leading-edge technology that they have. So transposing that over to their ballistic missile program and the nuclear program, how technically competent are they And how... Now, you, you never want them to mess around. It's like a kid with a hand grenade, right? You never want to leave them with that. But 
How serious a threat are these programs to us at the present time? Well, when you think about the fact that the Iranians have been working on these programs, nuclear warheads, as well as the delivery systems, the ballistic missiles, since about 1988, um, which uh, puts it at, um, well, we're coming up on, I can't do my math, nearly 30 years, <laughs> um, with the assistance of the top nuclear uh, technologically capable uh, regimes in the world, outside of the West, that is, not, not the United States and, and the West, but Russia, China, Pakistan, North Korea have all assisted the Iranian nuclear weapons program and ballistic missile program. So um, in and of themselves, in other years, words. The assistance of, of, of the best in the world outside of us, well, how could they not have yeah. uh, achieved you know, functioning warheads, and, and we know they have ballistic missiles as well. So, in other words, even though they might not have the technical expertise to be able to pull this off, they've brought in people who do, and that's where the threat really lies, is sooner or later they're, they're going to teach this kid how to cock the pistol, and then we're all in trouble. Well, they have been at it for a very long time. Um, I don't think that we should underestimate them. Um, you know, we, we have a much better assessment um, of, of the North Koreans' program simply because it's been more open and right. more openly tested. Um, the North Koreans have never had an offensive um, military technology that they haven't sold to Iran and to other places as well. Okay. Um, we also know the course of the, of the progress of the Pakistani nuclear weapons program and how that went. And um, it looks like the Iranians are following that blueprint, that pattern, that model. And remember, the Pakistanis had nuclear weapons for about six years uh, before they finally uh, demonstrated the capability in 1998 after the Indians, their arch rivals, um, demonstrated their capability that year. All right. Now, the other question I have for you just before we go to the break is uh, with Trump in the White House now, coming back to foreign policy but a little bit different uh, area, how does that change the game for Israel? Because let's face it, Obama was no friend of Israel. So have they got a, a new ally in Trump? I think the relationship um, between the Trump administration and Israel is going to be a very good one. And, and the personal relationship between a President Trump and Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, I think likewise will be a very good and a close personal one. So... Um, I think, I think that Israel uh, and the United States can look forward to a, a revival, if you will, of uh, what has always been uh, traditionally, a, uh, at least uh, in, in recent decades, a very close, um, cooperative and, and supportive relationship. I think both sides are looking forward to that very much. All right. With that, I'm going to hold you there. Uh, stay put. We'll be back with Claire Lopez right after this.
Timo's 2000 Mobile Auto Cleaning. Comes right to your driveway, makes your vehicle look brand new again. Classic cars, bikes, boats, RVs, dump trucks, hot rods, tractors, transport trucks. We can even make your minivan look like the day you drove it off the lot. Did you spill too much coffee on your seat? Did Junior decide he couldn't wait till he got home? And yuck, maybe you're just long overdue for that meticulous cleaning. Maybe you want to sell the old beast. Smartest thing you can do is make it look brand new again. Timo's 2000, 613-327-8498, 613-327-8498, or go to timos2000.com. Thanks for staying with us. My guest is Claire Lopez. Uh, I wanted to get back to the conversation. Uh, Claire, um, with all that's going on on the world stage, I mean, maybe I should flip this around. With all that's been going on uh, with the election and with the uh, you know upcoming inauguration with Donald Trump, what are the stories out there that, can, that are of concern to those of us in the West that we've been overlooking or haven't had a chance to really get into? seen a sample of that the last time the grid went down uh, starting out in Ohio it pulled most of the northeastern seaboard down with it so if you imagine this on a right and that was simply due to a, 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 a tree branch falling in a storm on a on an electric wire and uh, that cascade effect took out the entire northeastern United States plus parts of Canada uh, the electric uh, system there so if anything I could urge 
um, of, of, of urgency would, would be to uh, pass a couple of bills that have been languishing in the U.S. Congress. Uh, one is called the SHIELD Act, and one is called SIPA, C-I-P-A, uh, um, which those two um, would help to uh, protect our, our electric grid, or at least get started um, with, with securing the grid, and uh, that would help protect both of our systems. All right, let's turn in uh, domestically, because you're, you're quite right. I mean, a lot of times we get caught up in human threat, but that doesn't mean that's the only threat we face. So to protect ourselves against natural disasters, which this would be on a colossal scale, uh, is certainly a very wise and prudent thing to do. Unfortunately, uh, certainly here north of the border, we don't have very wise or prudent leadership, and I'll spare you the local politics on that one. But when it comes to the domestic issue in the United States, <coughs> there's um, I was watching something on um, on YouTube, which I posted on my Facebook page. Um, I'm trying to name it. Uh, Veritas was the name of the group. And they uncovered a plot by some real hardcore left-wing radicals um, who wanted to disrupt one of the inauguration balls by using uh, basically a chemical weapons attack, a uh, stink bomb attack using butyric, I think it's butyric acid, and just, you know, drive people out of the building. And they had no problem with this. And there's, I'm sure there's other threats out there. How big a job is this to try to get through the next four days without having anything really bad or serious happen? Well, of course, it's a, a massive um, security uh, job challenge uh, for all of our um, security agencies, from the Secret Service to uh, the National Capitol, uh, Washington, D.C. Police Force, and, and many other um, you know, security services who will be collaborating um, to, to provide security on, on this coming Friday. Um, I think that they are extremely capable. I think that uh, we can expect uh, a beautiful event, uh, other than the rain, um, to go off as planned um, with um, perhaps some uh, disruptions along the fringe. Um, but, you know, the, the, the actual... Uh, interior perimeter that surrounds our Capitol building in, in Washington, D.C., where the inauguration will take place, I think will be uh, very secure. Um, James O'Keefe and Veritas have done fantastic undercover work uh, exposing these people. Um, and that alone, I think, probably puts the kibosh on, on their nefarious plans to disrupt things. Um, for sure, there are other groups out there like that that uh, intend disruption. Um, I think that uh, our security services are probably well up to the challenge of uh, keeping people safe uh, and, and uh, able to enjoy the day. Um, but what I will say is that uh, there's, there's a larger and a, and, a, and a much more extensive threat that goes beyond our inauguration day in, in two days on Friday. Um, and it has to do with what we call down here a red-green axis or um, a, uh, an unholy alliance, maybe. And it has to do with um, a working alliance among the Muslim Brotherhood and all of its affiliates, uh, plus the Black Lives Matter movement down here uh, and some black nationalist and separatist movements. And then thirdly, um, the Saul Alinsky-type anarchist um, Marxist-Leninist, hardcore 
um, thugs uh, that, that have all three of these groups linked up forces and intend to bring chaos to America and to our streets um, in coming months, not, not just this week, but, but in coming weeks and months um, in an attempt really to bring down our system of law and order. Um, the target of, of this unholy alliance is really our constitutional system and, and law and order in this country. So that's a threat that, that, that goes well beyond this week's inaugural um, ceremony. Now, when you talk about the Muslim Brotherhood and the infiltration of it into the highest reaches of your government, and by extension, I have no doubt they've done the same thing here in Canada, um, <coughs> Trump obviously has to take a broom to the place. Um, they're going to, they're not going to like that. What do you think? And I know I'm asking you to look into a crystal ball, but project six months down the road, how successful do you think Trump will be at rooting out at least the most nefarious elements of this? Because some of these, some of this stuff is very nebulous and hard to nail down, you know, very clearly. So you know exactly who you're dealing with. Well, I think it'll be most important for the new Trump administration in particular, the new attorney general, um, Senator Jeff Sessions, uh, to, to get a jump on this right away, as quickly as possible. Uh, one place to start that seems obvious to many of us uh, would be to pick up where the 2008 Holy Land Foundation Hamas terror funding trial left off, uh, and that is with a list of over 200 individuals and groups named by the Department of Justice as unindicted co-conspirators uh, in that terror funding case, which gave priority to the Holy Land Foundation first to prosecute them, put them out of business, shut them down. But the evidence um, was all teed up. It's, it's ready to go. It's waiting. Uh, it includes uh, documents, financial records, wiretaps, uh, all kinds of other documentation um, about uh, Muslim Brotherhood activities uh, that, in fact, are uh, amount to uh, uh, very strong evidence of material support to terrorism, sedition, uh, and uh, conspiracy to commit the above, uh, which would fall under our RICO laws, which is organized crime um, uh, conspiracy laws. So there, there's plenty of evidence and there's plenty of um, opportunity uh, for the Department of Justice here to jump right back into the offensive um, against uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and its very extensive network here in the United States. And I think they need to do that uh, on an expedited basis. Well, let me ask you about one of, the, one of the most flamboyant things he said, especially back early in the day, in the early days of the campaign, when he said he wanted to bring a halt to Muslim immigration to use his quote in its full context, until we know what's going on. Um, I know he's a man, generally speaking, when he says something, he's going to do it. Do you think he'll follow through on that as well? Yeah, I sure hope so. Um, what he's talking about, essentially, is a moratorium, a break, a pause, hmm. uh, in bringing in any more Muslim immigrants uh, who cannot be properly and thoroughly vetted. Now, if we're talking about people coming in from battle zones in the Middle East, for example, uh, they're coming from places where the keeping of records is not the greatest, even in the best of times. This is hardly the best of times. Uh, we know that false documents, including fake passports, um, are sloshing all over the place. Hundreds and thousands of, of uh, false documents 
fake passports and, and more. No way on earth to be sure who's who. Um, but it's not just a geographical question of people coming from war-torn areas. Uh, it has to do with uh, revamping our refugee resettlement and immigration programs so that we vet for um, ideological compatibility uh, with the American system of law and order uh, and our society. That is to say that we need to be ha able to have a vetting system in place that not only can ascertain who these people actually are, their true identities and backgrounds and so forth, um, but even for those who have nothing to do with any kind of terrorist group and never have, but is their outlook, their worldview, their ideology compatible such that they would be willing to relinquish and abrogate and um, let go of allegiance to any other legal system, for instance, Sharia, Islamic mm -hmm. law, and pledge their allegiance truthfully and only to the United States Constitution. That is what needs to be required of all immigrants, or would-be visitors even, um, who uh, come here um, to be residents uh, or, to, or to immigrate. The old my house, my rules attitude. That's, that's the kind of um, revamping or, or um, you know, re reform of our system that needs to take place. And until that can happen, and until the officials who do the screening and the vetting can be trained in, in how to screen and how to vet for ideological compatibility with the American legal system, constitution, principles of law, then we do need a moratorium on uh, immigration um, from either people or, or people from places uh, where we cannot ascertain um, that their allegiance will be willingly and truthfully, genuinely given only to the U.S. Constitution if they come here. Okay, well, just on a, on a little more domestic uh, Canadian-American front, <clears throat> given the man that Trump is, and uh, I know you kind of keep one eye north of the border, Given the kind of, uh, well, I hesitate to use the word man, but our prime minister, the kind of person that he is, um, how do you see the U.S.-Canadian relationship developing over the next little while? Well, I hope that um, our new administration and, and we, you know, in general, uh, can be a help and a support um, to our Canadian friends to the north. Um, I know that you're wrestling with some of the same challenges that we've been um, for the last eight years of our last president's um, two terms in office. Uh, we're wrestling with some of the same uh, other kinds of challenges, uh, the global Islamic jihad, uh, Muslim Brotherhood penetration, uh, challenges from Iran. Um, so we face a lot of the same things. And as well, of course, we share um, many of the same foundational principles in our respective constitutions. And uh, with, with, with that in mind, I think um, we have a lot to collaborate on. We have a lot um, to, to cooperate on together and, and hope that we'll be able to do that. Well, very diplomatically put, because <laughs> I know there's certain people up here who can't wait to watch, what, uh, to watch Mr. Trump uh, deal with um, our prime minister. <laughs> I, you know what? I'll spare you the, the, the inside the, 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 inside the, uh, the joke. 
because it's it's I don't think it's it's going to be rather uncomfortable for your friend in the north. He's not going to like the encounter very much, I don't think. Anyway, um, just as we wrap up the, the our time with you, Claire, uh, one of the other big pledges he made was he's going to build that wall. And it's funny how that's the only wall a lot of these um, left-wing uh, individuals ever seem to protest. They don't have a problem with any other country doing it. And a lot of them lived in walled communities themselves. Is he actually going to build that wall? Oh, I'm certain that he will, yes. Um, people may not realize, but um, good long sections of our southern border, United States border with Mexico, uh, already do have uh, various kinds of barriers and security um, barriers uh, along, along that border already. Um, those uh, stretches that are not covered need to be. Um, we've got problems with tunneling as well. Uh, that's something that's going to have to be looked at, not going above but going below. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I am, uh, I'm confident that President-elect Trump uh, will keep his promise on that. Um, we absolutely have to secure that southern border. I've been down there along the Texas border, along the uh, Arizona border in particular, California too. Um, and right now uh, it is just um, essentially open. Uh, we don't know what's coming across. Um, we have a pretty good idea. Uh, lots of illegal immigrants, um, but also uh, lots of narcotics trafficking organized crime, everything that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got to secure our southern border uh, for the security of of the American people. All right, last question before I let you go. Um, Clara Lopez, is she looking ahead with cautious optimism towards the next four years? Oh, quite a bit of optimism, yes. All right, well, Claire, (laughs) uh, that was brief but to the point, and I like it. Thank you very much for being my guest this evening. I really appreciate your time and your insight. It's always a pleasure to have you, the show, have you on the show. And like you, I am cautiously optimistic, too. Um, you know, I've always said that Trump won't be as good as a lot of people hope he'll be, but he won't nearly be as bad as a lot of people are afraid of. And I think in the long run, you guys are going to do just fine. Thank you very much, Claire. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure. and hope, let's, let's get you back again real soon, okay? All right. All right. Sounds good. That's Claire Lopez. She was my guest this evening. I certainly hope you enjoyed that interview. We're going to uh, take a commercial break. When we get back, we're going to dive right into Hour 2 and a little bit more Canadian content um, right after this.
We often hear about the supposed dangers of human-induced climate change. But what about the disastrous consequences of climate policy? For example, the closing of Ontario's coal stations was the single most important cause of the 318% rise in power rates since 2002. Thousands of industrial wind turbines are being erected across the province, killing birds and bats and ruining the lives of people living nearby. The expanded use of biofuels has led to 6.5% of the world's grain going to fuel instead of food. Only 6% of the $1 billion spent every day on climate finance goes to helping people today. The rest is dedicated to trying to stop climate change that may someday happen. Yet the reports of the Non-Governmental International Panel on Climate Change show that the science backing the climate scare is highly uncertain. Isn't it time we focused on problems we know to be real? This message is brought to you by ClimateScienceInternational.org. I want to thank Claire again for being my guest this evening. That was great. I always enjoy talking to her. She's such an uh, informed source of information. Uh, she's always, you know, presents things cool and, and calmly and, and level-headedly. So I really appreciate her time. I know she's, uh, she's busy like crazy right now with the transition and so on, uh, given what she does for a living. So thank you again. Now, I want to let you know that we're, we're switching over to... Uh, a little more local stuff uh, north of the border. There's all kinds of things going on I do want to get into. So I'm going to try to pack as much into this hour as I can. Uh, first of all, the numbers are 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. You can drop me an email note to nick at, CF at, uh, John nick at latenightcouncil.com. And you can also s send me a note on Facebook if you want. If you want to make a comment or so on, I'm keeping an eye on as many different methods of communication as I possibly can. All right. Well, the latest, the, the big story today was that business tycoon uh, Kevin O'Leary is jumping into the race for conservative leadership of the uh, leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada, the federal party. And that would be fine. Let me. I wrote some thoughts about this and posted on Facebook, and it spawned quite a conversation. So I'm going to share it with you in case you haven't seen it. And I'm interested in what you have to say. Uh, about this because I've got some issues with it. Let me share them with you. Kevin O'Leary has decided to run for leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. This would be fine, but there's a problem. He isn't a conservative. He's just good with money. By saying he's a liberal on social issues, he's made the same mistake that Patrick Brown is making in Ontario. 
alienating 30% of his base. He's also going to drive away those conservatives who want a strong Canadian military, insisting, I lost my spot, <laughs> insisting that we are peacekeepers and there's no honor in being a warrior. <clears throat> then there are foreign affair, the foreign affairs types that want someone who understands how the world works and, how, and want Canada to be a world leader, not a herd follower. In this regard, Mr. O'Leary has demonstrated his total disconnect between how the world works and how he thinks it works by saying, as an example, that ISIS will have trouble recruiting, so recruiting soon because for a young man to join that group would be bad for his resume. I kid you not, he actually said that. I heard it. I was listening to uh, um, uh, Rob Snow today on the way in. And he was playing several clips and some different uh, montages of comments that Mr. O'Leary has said. That one, I, I could not believe that someone as intelligent as Mr. O'Leary would say something as absolutely asinine as that. But anyway, I digress. Uh, let's see, where are we? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> While he has some solid ideas about economics and vehemently opposes any kind of carbon tax, his overall qualifications to BPM are serious and disqualify him as a candidate for the country's top job. While he would make an excellent Minister of Finance, he's not PM material. The trouble is, his ego won't allow him to accept anything but the big chair, and that unfortunately does not bode well for conservatism or for Canada. So I'm curious. What do you think? I know there's been, a, like I said, there's been a lot of conversation about that on Facebook today. Uh, I personally think, look, I've also found uh, I, his attitude about uh, man-made global warming, okay? He's a believer. Now, I'm glad that he doesn't want a carbon tax. He vehemently opposes. Okay, now, I'm basing it on, on his comments, okay, on the things that he said on the radio. Because what else have we got to go by? You know, I don't know the man. I'm sure he's a really nice guy and he, that he's earned his money. He's, I'm not knocking him from that perspective. But there's a couple of things to keep in mind. I don't care who you are. If you start 30 points in the hole because you just alienated that many of your own voters, you can't win. Now, a lot of people, he, he says that he's going after the millennial vote. And he's, he's a liberal when it comes to social issues. Well, if I'm a millennial and I already have in Justin Trudeau all the kinds of social issues, his, his attitudes about abortion, same-sex marriage, uh, assisted suicide, you run down the list. If they're already in sync with what I want, then what do I want the conservatives for? The vast majority of people between 18 and, let's say, 25 or 30, they don't really... They're not worried about income. They're not worried about the economics. That comes later in life. Some of them are, to be sure. But generally speaking, most of those people haven't figured out there's anybody else on the planet yet. You know, a lot of them are still single. A lot of them, you know, and again, I'm painting with a broad brush, knowing that there's people out there who do not fit, who fit the demographic, but don't fit the description I'm giving. I get that. But in general, across the board, how many 23 or 24-year-olds do you know care about what the national debt is or what the deficit was this year? They don't even know what it means. 
You go down the street, any street in any Canadian city, and you stop the first 20-something you, uh, you ask and say, what do you think of the national debt? They'll look at you like you've got three heads. Some of them might, you might run into one that says, well, I, 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 you know, it's terrible. What do you want to do about it? Oh, I don't know, because I've never given it any thought. Okay, one of the great things about youth is you don't get bogged down in the <coughs> in the daily grind of life. That comes a little later. So going after the millennials, I'm not so sure that's going to work. Yes, he has star power. Absolutely. He's got a lot of sizzle. He understands the media and all those kinds of things. I have a feeling he's trying to take a page out of Donald Trump's book. Because let's face it. Donald Trump had star power, has star power. Everybody knows Donald Trump. A lot of people know Kevin O'Leary. But Kevin O'Leary is not a conservative. Patrick Brown is not a conservative. In order to be a conservative, you have to hold conservative values. Now, there's more to being a conservative than just balancing the checkbook. That's only one aspect of it. How is he going to deal with the threat of Islamic terrorism. You know what he wants? He wants Canada to return to the days of peacekeeping. Because he says, you know, that's where we're well known for. But he never stops to think about why we're well known for that. Because before we were good peacekeepers, we were excellent peacemakers. The only time a pe there's only two times peacekeeping can ever work. One is when both sides don't want to fight anyway, which is what happened in Cyprus. Or the other is the, the guy doing the peacekeeping isn't afraid to thump one of, the, one of the parties he's trying to keep the peace with if they get out of line. Well, you, you can't, other than that, it just doesn't work. So he, he's out of touch and, and too many important files. And this is what bothers me about Kevin O'Leary. He could be, you know, from all accounts, he's a soft-spoken guy. He plays guitar, collects, I'm sure he collects a lot of different guitars. I'm a guitar, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm not a very good one, but I'm a guitar player too. And I appreciate that. But that's not qualifications to be, like Stephen Harper played the piano. And he didn't do a bad job singing either. But that alone doesn't make it, didn't make him a good prime minister. You got to have, look, you have to be able, as a prime minister, to govern the whole country. Not just those you like. Not just those who like you. It's why Prime Minister uh, Trudeau is such a failure. If he's not a failure, what's this, this reconnect tour all about? Why do they have to go around the country trying to reconnect with voters? Because they're already sick of him. His approval ratings are finally starting to come down because people are getting to know the guy and they're not liking what they're seeing. So Kevin O'Leary presents himself, jumps in. You notice the timing of this. He didn't jump in, and you can, I'm, this is, I'm just looking at this and extrapolating from what I see. Why didn't he get into, the, get into this race three weeks ago? Well, this is just me, but that meant he would have had to take, take part in the French language debate, and his French is non-existent. So he didn't want to do that. Now, you can tell me I'm crazy, 
But he's not, I'm not accusing him of being stupid. Wait till that debate's over, then get in. Then whether or not you speak French isn't nearly as big an issue. So I just don't, I don't have any confidence in his, in his conservative credentials. I just, he's good. If I wanted, if I was going to pick somebody as a, as a finance minister, he's the guy. No question about it. The man knows his way around a dollar bill. No problem. But I do not believe for a moment he has the kind of qualities required to not only pull Canada back from the brink, but to keep it from ever heading that way again in the near future. That's what I don't have any confidence in, because he's, he's a liberal. He said so himself. Uh, now, he doesn't mean politically liberal, but he also said he could run for the liberals or the conservatives. It didn't matter to him. He just doesn't want to see the country waste any money. Okay, great, laudable. But that's not enough of a qualification to be prime minister. I'm sorry. And I know there's a lot of people have a lot have had a lot to say about Trump and you know some of the other candidates. Now I don't endorse candidate I don't endorse candidates, but I will tell you this much. If I did, Kevin O'Leary would not get my endorsement. Because he has basically done the same thing that Patrick Brown has done on a national scale. He's thrown thirty percent of his constituents under the bus, and that makes it almost impossible to win. And if you're going to go up against the red, big red machine of Trudeau and the liberals, you better have your act together. And I don't think Kevin O'Leary cuts, I don't think he cuts the mustard. I just don't think it has the case. Now, <coughs> I want to play for you a clip uh, from my one of my favorite commentators. His name is, uh, um, oh, come on, I'm having a brain cramp here, uh, Whittle. I can't think of his first name. Brian. Uh, Bill, sorry. Bill Whittle. Okay. I'm just having a mental block here because I've got too many thoughts running around in my skull. Okay. Um, this is about, it's called Appropriate This. Now, this piece takes these, uh, uh, you know how a lot of people are all about culture now and whose culture this is, and, and they just, it, it's all this politically correct crowd. Well, he makes a brilliant point. This runs about five minutes. I'll play it for you because I think you need to hear this. Now, as he goes through, he lists a bunch of inventions. Now, you can't see it on the video. But every time he mentions it, he mentions an invention, he puts the face of the inventor on the screen. Now, so if you ever want to see what the point I'm trying to make here, go look, Bill, go look, look up Bill Whittle, appropriate this, and you'll be able to see it for yourself. But the audio version is good enough it warrants listening to. So here's Bill Whittle. Let me this and then we can do that. Hi everybody, I'm Bill Little and this is the firewall. Well, cultural appropriation is the latest form of combat used by social justice warriors. That's a term used by cry bullies to describe themselves as fighters against prejudice and privilege. They're the first warriors in history to burst into tears and require weeks of therapy at the mere sight of an actual weapon. And there's only one area where these progressive millennials are not only allowed to, but actually encouraged to compete in, and that is the struggle to see who can be the biggest victim and win the virtue-signaling silver cup 
by being the most sensitive to racial and gender injustice. Cultural appropriation is the idea that white males have stolen various elements of minority and female culture and used them for their own benefit without acknowledging or appreciating the suffering of the offended party. It's everywhere, but the best example so far is a video shot at San Francisco State University where a black student confronts a white student who is culturally appropriating African-American dreadlocks. Let's watch for a moment, shall we? You're saying that I can't have a hairstyle because of your culture? Why? Because it's my culture. You know the boxing. Yo, girl, stop touching me. Yo, girl, you wouldn't know. That's no reason, yo. I don't need your disrespect. I don't need your disrespect. Why are you filming this? Everyone's safety. Listen, I get it. If anybody's on their side, I am. As a straight white male, I see these feminists and students of color appropriating my white male culture every day. When I think of them walking around in blue jeans using electricity to light their dorm rooms or to run their microwave ovens so that they can eat non-Anglo-Saxon food, well, frankly, it makes me sick. They sit there using their smartphones to write about social injustice and then use the internet to post it on Facebook and Twitter, and as a white male, I find this incredibly offensive. Do these racists ever give a thought to the fact that they're not dying in their 20s and 30s because of immunization, pasteurization, antiseptics, and antibiotics? When they go to the hospital, do they think about the suffering and back-breaking work by unknown white males in order to bring them laser surgery, MRI scans, artificial ventilators, and all the rest? Do they give an instant's thought to the fact that none of them have developed polio or scores of other infectious diseases? Nope. They just culturally appropriate these things, and then they use them inauthentically. But what really, really makes me lose my mind is when I look down the aisle of an airplane. Oh, yeah, they're reading articles about Beyonce, and they're listening to Drake and Kanye West, but how many of these feminists and social justice warriors of color know the name of the man that invented the jet engine that is carrying them from their parents' house to their hissy fits at the University of Ottawa or Oberlin or Yale, Harvard, Missouri, and all the rest at 550 miles an hour? Not one of them, I'll bet. Not one. His name was Whittle, you ignorant, insensitive, racist pigs. I just want to get up and slap every one of them, but, you know, that's a white thing you wouldn't understand. And of all of the things that social justice warriors have culturally appropriated from white men, the one thing that I demand full recognition of is rap. Mary Margaret as a midsummer flower, gentle as a falcon, or a hawk of the tower, with solace and gladness, much mirth and no madness, all good and no badness, so joyously, so maidenly, so womanly, her demeaning and everything far, far passing, that I can indict or suffice to write. Hip-hop rhyming is called skeltonic verse, and it was invented by the man that wrote those lines, white male John Skelton, who was born in England in 1463. Now, if all of this sounds petty and ridiculous, and racist and utterly barking mad to you, well, it sounds that way to me too. But that's who these progressive tri-bully tribalists are, insecure fascists who want to tell other people how to wear their hair. They become apoplectic about things like the Washington Redskins, but they may want to take a lesson from another despised and marginalized group of American immigrants, and that would be the Irish. The two great slurs leveled against the immigrant Irish concerned their drunkenness and their violence. Here's the mascot they chose for themselves at Notre Dame. It's a drunken, fighting leprechaun, and here's the parade that they have annually, and here's the green beer we all drink on St. Patrick's Day, and once a year, everyone in America is Irish, including this left-wing, divisive, Alinskyite agitator. That's because, unlike the social justice weenies, the Irish have a sense of humor, which they no doubt culturally appropriated from our common African ancestors. So, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, why don't you grow up, you whiny little crybabies?
And that's Bill Whittle explaining <laughs> cultural appropriation. Boy, you know something? He's one of my favorite commentators because he lays it out so, so well. When you've finished listening to him, you get it. You just get it. All right, we'll take a break, and we'll come back with more right after this. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays, and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. Four three seven zero zero four three nine zero eight four four five six two four seven six six. That's three four three seven zero zero four three nine zero or eight four four five six two four seven six six. You can also send me an email to nick at late night council dot com and send me a fa Facebook message if you like. One way or another, you can certainly reach me. This next story. You know, every time you think the insanity has hit the bottom and it can't get any worse. That nothing could top the last story? Well, they managed to surprise you and pull out a... You this is so outrageous. This is so unbelievable. This is so stupid. This is so hurtful, disgusting. I can't think of more, uh, an adjective that describes how callous this story is. It comes to us from the Rebel. Uh, the video on it is a couple of minutes long, and I'm going to play it for you because I don't know if I could get through it without absolutely losing my mind. So here it is. This is from the Rebel, and you're not going to believe this. They say two things are inevitable in life, death and taxes. Here in Alberta, that's true now more than ever, you see the NDP are carbon taxing funerals. The situation all came to light when a bereaved family contacted the CBC. 
saying they thought they had been overcharged for cremation services. The funeral home had charged the family $100 extra for funeral costs, with a line item detailing these extra expenses as the carbon tax. So the family went to the CBC to tell their story, and then the CBC contacted the funeral home, who explained they had made a mistake and had accidentally miscalculated the carbon tax by a full decimal point, that the real charge should have been $10 for natural gas and transportation and carbon tax-related expenses for maintaining a bricks-and-mortar building. Now, it may have been an accident. The overcharge may have been on purpose. I don't really know. I don't think we'll ever know. And it's not really why this all bothers me. You see, the NDP haven't explained the carbon tax well because they don't understand the carbon tax themselves. It's supposed to change behavior, but then in the middle of it, there's a rebate that takes all that incentive away. And so businesses are left struggling to figure out how to recoup these added costs from the carbon tax. And this, of course, means mistakes will happen and consumers will be overcharged or undercharged. Who the heck even knows? And this should bother us all for a much bigger, much grosser reason. After refusing to exempt our local food banks and our local charitable organizations from the carbon tax, and after flatly refusing to exempt school boards from the carbon tax, it's now revealed that the NDP are taxing Alberta families on the very worst day of their lives, the day they have to say goodbye to someone they love. And to compound this ghoulishness, the NDP actually blames Alberta funeral homes because they didn't just absorb this increased cost to their bottom line that the NDP handed them. Economic Trade and Development Minister Darren Billis said, and I quote, it's disappointing that the company is choosing to increase their costs, which is a business decision should they so choose. But to blame the carbon levy is more than a little misleading to consumers, end quote. So Billis and his government are taxing the dead and grieving families, but the funeral homes are the bad guys for telling people about it. Can you even believe these people? I get it, Billis. You wouldn't want the funeral homes letting people know that the government is taxing the dearly departed. It might make you look a little bit like grave robbers, the kind of people who yank fillings out of dead bodies. Every person in Alberta is going to die. Every family in Alberta is going to have to bury someone they love. That's life. No one makes it out alive. But it would be a little less ghoulish if we could die without Rachel Notley's hands in our pockets. For the Rebel Dot Media, I'm Sheila Gunreed. Now, I got to tell you, folks, I have accused the left, the NDP, the liberals, the progressives of a lot of things. But I've never would have dreamed that they would come up with a scheme like this. As a man who's already attended far too many funerals in his own experience, and I'm sure there's many people out there who feel the same way, you don't want to go to any more funerals than you absolutely have to. A funeral is not the time to levy social engineering. It is not the time to foist on people a green agenda. This is a carbon tax. This is, a, th this is theft. They cannot justify through science because there is no scientific, or at least, at the very least, there's a lot of doubt about the science surrounding all this, as they call it, climate change. I call it global warming. And yet, 
they don't care. They knew what they were doing when they passed this. The part I'm terrified about is that Kathleen Wynne will figure this out and say, hey, there's a revenue tool that we can use right over here. On one hand, why not? Why not? I mean, she's already reaching into her pocket to the point where she's poking her fingers through the bottom. When hydro rates are through the roof and people have to choose between heat and food, this is the kind of thing, this is what's wrong with progressives. This is why, now I'm not saying Kevin O'Leary would ever do this, okay, or even Patrick Brown, but the point is they believe in the, the science that these people use to justify this stuff. This is so insane. This is so crazy. My sister is... is um, <clears throat> It has has a how do I put this? Her ex husband is an undertaker. My former brother in law, Randy. And while I was living in southern Ontario, uh, we had uh, you know I was around for a bunch of funerals. Several of them were my next of kin. Both my parents, uh, you know, that we we buried both of them through that funeral home. And I got an idea of what it's like and what families go through and the kind of things and the way that. The, the kind of dignity and the kind of, um, you know, the way that a well-run funeral home has to deal with grieving families. I cannot imagine a funeral, home, a funeral director sitting across from a grieving family and say, by the way, the government is demanding another, an extra $10 from you for a carbon tax because your Aunt Lizzie just got cremated. Can you imagine the look on their faces? And yet this is the reality. This is a kind of insanity that flows from a single lie. And that lie is that carbon dioxide gas is pollution. That's where it all goes back to. This is, this is David Suzuki's fault. This is Al Gore's fault. This is Notley's fault. And this is the fault of everybody who ever said, yeah, and we got to stop it. There's nothing to stop. And now families are going to be burdened with this at the worst possible moment. A carbon tax on funerals. A carbon tax. It's not even like it's a tax where there's some kind of return for the investment. Like when you put gasoline in your tank, some of that money is supposed to go into maintaining the infrastructure your car uses to get you back and forth to work. That's at least the, the, that's the facade that we're told. Where that money really goes, who knows. But at least you could say, okay, I can, I can see the argument for that. Property taxes, okay? They maintain the fire, the ambulance, the police, uh, the municipal services, things like that. You don't like the tax, but at least there's something in return for it. But what do you get back out of this? I'm sorry, folks. This is just, it goes right through me like a nail. Like, I cannot imagine anybody being able to justify a carbon tax, especially on a funeral. Even if you think a carbon tax is a good idea, there's times when you say, you know what? This is not the time. This is not the place. We are not going to do this. 
Not here, not now. But you see, when you're a progressive, none of that matters. Because the planet is more important than the people who live on it. It's the planet that matters, you idiot. Don't you get it? It's the planet, stupid. Well, what good's the planet if there's no people on it? That's the whole point of the planet in the first place. It's a place we call home. And to have this kind of nonsense rammed down our throat again, and I really feel for the people of Alberta. There was another story in the news tonight. The Fort Mac fire cost $9 billion. $9 billion with a B. Wiped the town out. And then I'm reminded of how much our government actually gave them to help rebuild. <sighs> you know something, folks? This is why I get so upset when I see the kind of shenanigans going on in political parties that puts the party ahead of the people, that puts an agenda that doesn't serve the people, serves the party or some foreign agenda, and that makes me crazy. Whether it's global warming or UN Agenda 2030 or whatever it is, all this stuff. And it's why when I saw what Patrick Brown was doing, I lost my mind. I didn't lose my mind, but I got upset when I watched what Justin Trudeau does with our hard-earned dollars. You know they gave $20 billion away in foreign aid? They didn't give a dime to Fort Mac. Now, I'm not against foreign aid. I think you should help your neighbor out when you can. But if you're standing there, imagine this. This is what we're doing as a country. Our neighbor's house is on fire. So we go rushing over there with a bucket of water to help. But at the same time, our house is on fire. Now, if you had to choose between which fire you're going to put out first, which one would it be? Are you going to go running over to your neighbor and say, here, Fred, let me help you with that? Fred's, of course, going to say, well, thanks. But over your shoulder, your wife and kids are standing on the front lawn watching your house burn to the ground. And they don't get it. That's what we're doing. And then we're excusing the people who lit the fire in the first place. All the victimologists that are out there. All the people say, you owe me. I want, I'm entitled to my entitlements. And you wonder why people go just, they just want to disappear into the bush. Leave me alone. I'm done. I'm burnt out. I don't want any more to do with politics. At a time when those are the very kind of people we need to be able to rebuild this country again. And if you don't think this country needs rebuilding and re-overhauling to put it back on the tracks that got us here in the first place, then you've been living on Mars. All right, we'll take a quick little break. When we get back, we'll have more right after this.
Timo's 2000 Mobile Auto Cleaning. Comes right to your driveway and makes your vehicle look brand new again. Classic cars, bikes, boats, RVs, dump trucks, hot rods, tractors, transport trucks. We can even make your minivan look like the day you drove it off the lot. Did you spill too much coffee on your seat? Did Junior decide he couldn't wait till he got home? And yuck, maybe you're just long overdue for that meticulous cleaning. Maybe you want to sell the old beast. Smartest thing you can do is make it look brand new again. Timo's 2000, 613-327-8498, 613-327-8498, or go to timos2000.com. Okay, well, wrong one. There we go. Okay, thanks for staying with us, folks. I'm just looking at a story here out of Finland. Let me just click on the right link here. The headline is, Finland, Finland is training children to rat out parents for wrong think. Oh, my God. So, in essence, if I get this right... Oh, hang on a second. Oh, I know why, because it won't be in English. All right. This would be an excellent post for parents in Western nations to write their own stories about having to re-educate their children after especially intense periods of Marxist brainwashing. Many parents have relayed stories about how their children were told to report back to school if, for example, the family had the wrong kinds of appliances, which would allegedly lead to global warming for using too much power. <sighs> you know something? How many? Let me ask you this. If you're a parent, how many times... Have you, and you, you consider yourself, you know, to be well-balanced and adjusted, able to make decisions for yourself. How many times have you had to take your kids aside and say, listen, I know this is what your teacher is telling you. You look at their textbooks, and this indoctrination is woven through the whole thing. And you look at it and you say, I can't believe this. It's everywhere. It's in their mass. It's in their social studies. It's in their reading. It's in their, uh, you know, grammar textbooks, whatever it is. Everywhere you turn, there's this environmentalist Nazism built in, socialism built in to the curriculum. Now, many of you know that for a lot of years, my wife and I homeschooled our children because we didn't like the education system. We didn't like the education they were getting. Too many times they came home and they said, okay, I'm talking about, actually, let me tell you the story how it started. When my two oldest were, when we were still living in southern Ontario in a, in a town called Tilbury, uh, my two oldest were actually in school. And I think my oldest son, if I remember right, was in grade two. 
So that would make him about, would it be seven, six or seven years old, maybe eight. Anyway, far too young. He came home. Now, Peter is not an overly emotional child. He certainly wasn't. He's a grown man now. But he wasn't the kind of kid that would come home, you know, uh, somebody looked at him crossways, bursting into tears. He was a, he was just a well, he was a good kid, and he had a good, good heart, good head. But he came home and he's crying. So my wife said to him, Peter, well, honey, what's the matter? And he stopped and he looked at her and he said, Mom, is it true that you and Dad are going to die from AIDS? At eight years old, that was the last straw. There had been other things that had happened before we got to that point. We did issue, issues with the school on different things. And finally, because at that time we didn't have eight kids. I think at that time we had one, two, three. I forget. <laughs> I think we had three. Um, anyway, and Allison said, that's enough. You're coming home. I'm going to teach you guys. And she pulled him out of school. Because some idiot... Some bureaucrat somewhere had decided that my children needed to know not only what the acronym AIDS stood for, but what it did to you and how you get it and what you have to do to protect yourself against it at eight years old. So we said, okay, that's enough. And we pulled our kids out. Now, in recent years, our youngest three have gone back to school. And the reason they did was because uh, the, our lives at the time, we just didn't have the time to commit. Allison was, was doing a lot of work with Warhorse and things like that. And uh, I'm a lot of things, but a good school teacher isn't one of them. And I was busy too, so we have a good little Catholic school in our town. And we said, okay, we'll put them, we'll put them back in school because we trust the principal. Uh, you know, they're pretty closely tied to the church and things like that. So we felt relatively secure that they were going to get a, a relatively good education. And for the most part, that's true. But even in that setting, we had to bring every once in a while, uh, I'll be looking through the textbook, or they'll be t we'll be talking about what they're doing. Because I like to, and my wife and I like to stay on top of what's going on. You know, it's, it's part of the job of being a parent. And we'd have to pull them and say, okay, so take this, this global warming nonsense. Okay, you realize and explain to them why what they're being told isn't necessarily so. So when you see a story out of Finland um, where the kids are being told to turn their parents in, I wonder how far down the road that is for us here in Canada. If the mindset that we saw in the story out of Alberta about a carbon tax on funerals, if that mindset is not reined in, how big a stretch is that? How far down that road do we have to go before we have to start worrying about our own kids turning us in because we haven't changed our refrigerator in 10 years, even though there's nothing wrong with it? You know, this is the kind of stuff George Orwell wrote in his book 1984. Everybody at the time said, oh, that'll never happen. Couldn't happen here. We're a democracy. Yeah, well, maybe for today we are. What would you do if you found out that your kid, your child, excuse me, was being told by the staff of the school they attended 
What kind of? What, how old is your mommy's fridge or stove? Do they heat with electric, or do they heat with gas? Uh, you know, what? How, what and start asking probing questions. Maybe I don't have the right exactly the right questions, but start asking probing questions. Say, look, if you see mommy, you know, using the dryer in the summertime, let me know. You know, and then it's the teacher. Kids are taught to trust their teachers. What would you do about it? I tell you what, I hit the roof. There would be a lot of explaining going on. And if you think I'm being far fetched. Remember back about three or four years ago when that little, I forget whether it was a boy or a girl. I think it was a boy. I can't remember. The child drew in red crayon a picture, a picture of her dad with a pistol shooting bad guys. When the father went to the school, because they dragged this little kid up to the principal's office, he was patted down and arrested. Do you remember that? Because the teacher thought the child was was expressing some kind of fear. No, the kid had an imagination and trusted her daddy to take care of the bad guys. And yet this teacher trampled all over parental rights. Now, I think finally, if my memory serves me correctly, that, that the man got an apology uh, from the school board and from the teacher. But that's the first time I think I heard the term co-parents, where teachers look at themselves as joint parents of the children they teach. Now, this, of course, is not true in every case, but it's far too prevalent. So, again, how far are we away from this idea that the schools become the Stasi or the Gestapo or the, uh, the KGB of our society for the reasons of saving the planet because we all know the planet's more important than the people that live on it. There's got to be an end to this. This is why we cannot afford to have people in leadership who absolutely accept without question this whole global warming nonsense. These are the kind of consequences that come from it. This is where these conversations lead. And how do you stop it once it gets ingrained? It's already so bad out there. And if you doubt me, go talk to that uh, university teacher, uh, Peterson, down in, in the University of Toronto. Look what he's dealing with. He's got to know 57 different uh, pronouns to be able to talk to his students. You can't call them... Uh, sir or madam, or boy or girl, you've got to call them Zen or Zippity Doodah or, or, you know, some other name that they like. We have just simply gone mad. Absolutely falling off the train mad. This is the kind of stuff that just makes me weep for my country. Now, this is in Finland. I get it. Finland is a very socialist country. But we're not that far behind. And we are terrible at looking overseas and taking a lesson from what's going on in other countries who are similar to us. So I don't know. Maybe I'm nuts. Maybe I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. But I don't think so. I think there's a lot at stake here. And I think that everything we're seeing, this whole... Because if you look at the whole thing, 
from an overall perspective. Step back from the trees and look at the forest. What direction is our culture headed in? It's a Gaia culture. It's where we worship the earth as if it was a god, or in this case, a goddess. Without paying any attention and being scorned, laughed, mocked, and ridiculed if we ever mention the Creator. Anyway. All right, I'm done with that rant. Let's take a little break, and when we come back, we'll have more right after this. A big, big city and it's always the same Can never be too pretty Tell me your name, is it out of line? If I was to be bold and say, would you be mine? Because I may be a beggar and you may be the queen I know I may be on a downer, I'm still ready to dream Though it's three o'clock The time is just the time it takes for you to talk so if you're lonely, why don't you say you're not lonely? Oh, you're a silly girl, I know, I heard, it's so, it's just like you to come and go. We often hear about the supposed dangers of human-induced climate change. But what about the disastrous consequences of climate policy? For example, the closing of Ontario's coal stations was the single most important cause of the 318% rise in power rates since 2002. Thousands of industrial wind turbines are being erected across the province, killing birds and bats and ruining the lives of people living nearby. The expanded use of biofuels has led to 6.5% of the world's grain going to fuel instead of food. Only 6% of the $1 billion spent every day on climate finance goes to helping people today. The rest is dedicated to trying to stop climate change that may someday happen. Yet the reports of the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change show that the science backing the climate scare is highly uncertain. Isn't it time we focused on problems we know to be real? This message is brought to you by ClimateScienceInternational.org. All right, well, here's a story uh, from a source I don't often quote, but this is from the Huffington Post, which is known to be uh, a little left of center. But even they are alarmed at Trudeau's spending. Let me share with you a little bit of this story. I'm starting about, uh, let's see, the headline is Trudeau's spending priorities send too many tax dollars overseas. Okay, so let me share you the first paragraph or two, and then I'm going to jump down some. It was interesting to read David Aiken's numbers on Trudeau's dollar handouts in his first 100 days in office. 
By his calculation, it amounts to $5.3 billion, of which slightly less than a billion dollars was spent inside the country. $4.3 billion went outside the country and will buy you a lot of thanks from some organizations, such as the UN, from climate change conferences. That type of spending will also earn you a lot of selfies to up your political profile. But in the end, it is our taxpayers footing the bill. All right. Spending priorities are always set by the Prime Minister. It is interesting to note that the $5.3 billion that Trudeau spent in his first 100 days almost matches the funds the Liberals under Paul Martin were going to spend on the Kelowna Accord to help our First Nations. The accord included $5.1 billion with plans for, and they list a whole bunch of different ways they were going to spend the money. Imagine if Trudeau's first 100 days, he had a different set of priorities and instead, instead spent his $5.3 billion on our First Nations, youth, and communities. What is the bet that the coming budget are... <coughs> In that in the coming budget, our First Nations won't see a dollar amount that is anywhere near what Trudeau had set, set, sent outside the country in just his first 100 days and nowhere near the amount of the Kelowna Accord. Are the needs of the First Nations and youth communities any less now? Or here's another thought. Last year, a UBC study noted that a national pharmacare plan would cost Canada about $5.4 billion, almost the same as Trudeau's spending in his first 100 days. Does anyone think we will see such a plan in the coming budget? Probably not. It's about Trudeau's priorities. The National Bank has already predicted that Trudeau's spending could result in a $90 billion deficit by the time the next election comes around. Now, I want to stop there and make a point. That's not a national debt. Okay? That's $90 billion. That means, and I know this is basic economics 101, that means... He's going to spend, by the time the next election comes around, the year that happens, he will have spent $90 billion more than what the government takes in in that year. $90 billion. Now, just because I enjoy doing this, I'm going to tell you how much money a billion dollars is. If you were to take a stack of... Uh, um, Skids of 100, uh, if you put a billion dollars, let me put it to you this way. If you put a billion dollars in a building, not in a bank, because the interest would screw it up. If you put it in a building and you spent $100,000 a day, it would take you 27 years to spend it all at $100,000 a day. That's just $1 billion. He's going to spend 90 times that amount unless something changes. He's already spent 5.3 in just 100 days. And that's money outside the country. Now, look, I know I keep harping about Fort Mac, and there are other issues in the country that need to be dealt with. Okay? <laughs> How about... Imagine how many miles of Trans-Canada Highway you could build between, uh, let's say, Arn Pryor and the Manitoba border for $5.3 billion. It's all in Ontario, but who cares? It's, it's the national highway. It's federal jurisdiction. They're the ones in, involved in national infrastructure. You could, sir, Hey, maybe they could fix that bridge up there at the Nipigon River, what do you think, for $5.3 billion. At least then the money would be spent in Canada. It's this kind of thing that it's just remember when he, during the campaign he said he was going to run modest, modest deficits. 
And then when questioned about his fiscal policy, he laughed at the reporter who was asking him about it and said, that's for you guys to figure out. You got the calculators. Besides, you shouldn't worry about it. The budget balances itself. But see, at the time, everybody was so in love with this guy. Oh, he owned your hand when he gave you a handshake. His hair was perfect. He was so dreamy. What a load of horse pucky. And now this drunken sailor, no, that's an insult to drunken sailors. This young boy king has the hand, has his hands in the in the country's national treasury. And not only is there no money there, he's digging a hole in the bottom of it that we'll never be able to refill. If we have a $90 billion deficit in three years, just imagine where the debt will be. It'll be over a trillion, I can tell you that. That doesn't mean we're going to get out. Look, no matter who the conservative leader ends up being, and I've already told you what I think of Kevin O'Leary, but they are going to have a huge, huge problem on their hands. Because while Justin may wear out his welcome and people th and the, the, the people of the country throw him out on his ear, whoever comes in next is going to have to make so many painful decisions that people are going to take it out on them because they're the ones who have to actually cause the pain to solve the problem. It won't be fair, but that's the way it's going to work. Because that's how it always goes. <sighs> so anyway, that's just, man, you know what? Something's got to give. We cannot keep going this way. <sighs> we just can't. He cannot be allowed. Well, be allowed. What am I going to do about it? You know, we just have to be committed to finding the right leader for the Conservative Party who not only is good fiscally, but can run the country as a whole in all aspects, not just economic. But this kid is making such a mess. Throwing good money after bad, not giving, not, not caring one bit. Not caring one bit about the future for you, me, and your children. All right, that wraps it up for me tonight. Thank you all very much. I want to thank Claire again for being my guest in the first hour. I certainly hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. I will see you all again next Wednesday. In the meantime, ubiqueritas et amor. Deus y biest. Good evening. God bless. Don't let anything disturb your peace. And may you have a fair wind and a following sea. Of all the money that e'er I had, I spent it in good company. And all the harm I've ever done Alas, it was to none but me And all I've done for want of wit To memory now I can recall So fill to me the parting